Johnny Gould's Jewish Steak. The Israeli government's bid to overhaul the legal system to significantly curb the High Court of Justice's power to review their lawmaking meets with huge public protest. The proposals give the government an automatic majority on the selection of judges, allow Knesset lawmakers to overrule court rulings with a bare majority of 61, allowing cabinet ministers to appoint their own legal advisers. A hundred thousand or more Israelis protested against their government across the country, blocking highways, the police standing back and letting it happen. No citizen under threat of their lives for speaking up. As a diaspora Jew, I support the state of Israel sans compromis. It's not for me to criticize or object to certain policies. Worse, to withdraw my support for the Jewish state. If I forget the O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. But now I'm talking to my Jewish brothers and sisters. Are they just like pull yourselves together? When our deathly enemies are gloating about it, get a grip. Hassan Nasrallah, the Iranian-sponsored terror lord of Lebanon. This government of stupid people, for the first time we can hear from former officials of the Israeli regime, uh, the former ministers predicting a domestic and civil war. They are talking of bloodshed. about your intelligence, Hassan. Fleur Hassan Nahum is Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem and a Likud Party member. Curtailing the very expansive powers of judicial review of the Israeli Supreme Court. A lot of people are very panicked about this and all we're trying to do is be more a little bit like UK and the US. So I love this kind of fake outrage from people who don't know what they're talking about. And what are the issues within that Supreme Court? What, well, the what, main, are, what, what are the left worry about? Well, the left worry about the protection of minority rights. Um, and, you know, I understand their concern because ultimately the Supreme Court is the only real check and balance over the legislature and the executive. However, the um, Supreme Court has taken powers for itself um, and become, it's called judicial activism. In other words, they're acting like legislators. And so a lot of people are saying, well, this means that this is not balanced. The other issue that I have with the, uh, with the Supreme Court is that it's um, the way that it's elected is that the, the judges themselves have veto power on who they let in. So basically they're only letting in their friends. And their friends are a very small section of the population, you know, in other words, much less Sephardis than should be, mm. and all sorts of other kind of... Yeah. It's the one percenters that live in yeah. one place to think of things in one way. Yeah. And so there should be a little bit more diversity in the Supreme Court, more women, uh, more, more uh, Sephardis, minorities, Arabs. And so this is, you know, these are things that have to be done. But again, you know, everything is doomsday. When the, yeah. right, the right wing is in power, whether it's here with the Conservative Party yeah. or whether it's in Israel or whether it's in America with Trump, you know, the press kind of conspire with these doomsday scenarios that in the end never happen. And even if there's a little budget here and there, it's legitimate, there's a new government. We've seen and heard the protesters. We've read the often ugly rhetoric, seen politicians held back from confronting each other. So perhaps where the most credible criticism comes from is by the old grandees of the ruling Likud party, where centre-right voices of moderation are calling for cool heads, and maybe an acknowledgement that both sides have a point. This from the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Danny Ayalon. I'm much more optimistic 
cooling uh, heads will prevail. And my main concern, before anything else, is the unity of the Israeli people and the Jewish people worldwide. Unity is uh, not really uniformity. That means Jews have never been uniform in the sense that, you know, every two Jews have three opinions. Uh, this is, a, I think, part of the greatness of the Jewish people. We like to dissent. We like to uh, oppose each other intellectually. We, we like the argument for argument's sake. I think by this, you really can synthesize and you crystallize uh, great ideas and, and good thoughts. Uh, as long, of course, as you do it in an uh, amicable way, and as long as you do it through verbal arguments and not as our neighbors around us do it through bullets. Some basic ideas and basic ethos is what unites us, whether we are from the right or from the left, where we are from uh, Ashkenazi or from uh, Sephardi uh, descent, where we are from the Kibbutzim, Judea and Samaria. There are some things that have always united us, which was the well-being and the future and the security of the state of Israel. And the well-being of the state of Israel very much depends on the way we can do a national discourse or a public discourse. I am for some things in the reform, but, and I'm coming from the right, I do hold the government responsible. They have the responsibility not to split the people apart. They have the responsibility to bring a reform which will be done in a much more reasonable way. You cannot really push such a reform in terms of the speed that they're wrecking down the throat of half of the people of Israel. Time to consult with a truly heavyweight think tank. The Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs and its new president, Dan Dyker. Dan's a former Secretary General of the World Jewish Congress, a group representing Jewish communities and their organizations in 100 countries. And Dan returns to the JCPA, having worked under Ambassador Dore Gold, who he's now replaced in the top job, Dr. Gold has retired. And if you've detected a glint of showbiz in Dan's eyes, you'd be right. In the 80s, he trained as an actor in New York and landed several movie roles, including Delta Force 3, The Killing Game. And our conversation broadens to the persistent violence perpetrated by Palestinians and why the Arab East and the Christian West seem to be switching sides. Johnny Gould's Jewish State, bringing Israel and the diaspora together. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, buy him a coffee. He loves coffee at ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould very exciting to see you're attracting attention and I, I can see with your sort of exciting personality how that happens you know that, that's well, the key to the whole thing the interviews are um, I try and make them accessible but I'm an optimist I'm an optimist in, in the Jewish community really and that includes Israel. yes if you want to talk about the judiciary I have met with Elazar Stern who is, you know, a kippah wearing uh, former very senior officer in the IDF And he's a center-left politician with the Blue and White Party. And he gave me some insight as to the fears of people in Israel, much more than the substance of judicial, of judicial reform. And this is what I've, and, and you know, I, politically, I come from the other, much more conservative side of things, but do have warm feeling in my heart for all Israelis and all Jews, regardless of your political affiliation. And I'm really trying to get to the to, to the heart and soul of what has driven tens of thousands of people to surround the Knesset and m members of Knesset to jump on tables and in sort of an ungodly 
display. They see ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox nationalists and, and political conservatives led by Mr. Netanyahu driving through the basis of which they actually agree with, with, with the with, with, they actually agree on substance with a lot of the problems with our court system. But what has been painful for them is the heavy handedness in which the the government has sort of driven with a 500 pound sledgehammer the this uh, uh, this reform program without, um, you know, I'll show you. Uh, Israel is very much an I'll show you political system. Right. Um, and, and so that's what's going on here is this is this power struggle um, between, um, you know, between the current government and the rather. I would say, sad, upset, forlorn, frustrated former Labour Party and and others that have morphed out of the Labour Party into a more centrist position. But they've lost a lot of power. They've lost a lot of public support. And there's an enormous amount of pain associated with that loss. And that's really what's going on playing out in the streets of Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. The threat, though, the idea of a 61-seat majority in the Knesset organizing who is a Jew, the law of return, and then an adversary politics comes in and then the next administration then decides that Jewish great-grandparents should be allowed because they're more liberal. Uh, We can't have legislation like that which is not balanced. We will end up with a country full of confusion and um, extreme election results over the next few years if the Knesset becomes the superior power. Checks and balances. When power moves from one government to another, it's the protection of the individual. This is the idea of the American system where the individual must be protected against the tyranny of the masses. Absolutely. Absolutely right. But here is the rub in Israel. The rub in Israel is that we never had a constitution, as you know. The Magna Carta is the nearest thing we've got. To a constitution. So the question is, if we did a one-to-one comparison between the Magna Carta and the basic law, it would be a fascinating, actually, uh, investigation into the concretization of the principles um, of democracy and freedom underlying both countries. I will say in the Israeli version, there has been a growing uh, frustration by a majority of the Israeli public that the Supreme Court, as of 1992, when the revolution began, what they call the Supreme Court revolution, that they took upon themselves the possibility of self-replicating and uh, at will and vetoing men and women who would come into the Supreme Court at will, so that they became a, a second sovereign, if you will, uh, and then and that it, there was a wide understanding that that did need some reform. Whether this particular government's judicial reform program is the answer or not is up for debate and deliberation. But what's fascinating, Johnny, is that the vast majority of Israelis in the last 30 years have said the judicial system must be reformed. It cannot be that the what's called the legal advisor to every single ministry and the prime minister can actually turn and determine against him, saying that Netanyahu, because he has an ongoing trial for six or seven years, cannot be involved uh, in these judicial reform deliberations it it, it it either one is an advisor or one is part of the independent judiciary but this is sort of a sort of bizarre hybrid identity within this larger context of legal reform and the third issue is this issue of the 61 of votes in the um, parliament whether that's sufficient or insufficient it suggested that a supermajority of 70 out of 120 is far more consensus driven and, and then it was pointed out in this institute M.K. Simcha Rotman, who is the co-author of the judicial reform, he spoke here in English for the first time, but he made a good point. He said, you know, when the judicial reform was passed in 1992, out of a simple, meaning a a very simple majority of 32 to 19, why should we then force upon ourselves the supermajority when the original revolution was passed with not even a majority of the parliament of just 32 to 19? A fascinating historical precedent there, and uh, well, the country is quite different since those days too. So yes, it is. It's quite. It is. It's quite different, and we do need. Look, we do, we do need to be much more united than we are because we do face some very serious civil unrest. And uh, the regardless of the the reasons, you know, the right can say what they want. 
But at the end of the day, one wants to avoid, God forbid, a violence, bloodshed, and and a real what they say in Hebrew. The word is shesa, which is a, a tearing apart of the social fabric of the country. One one that has to be avoided at all costs. Shalom bite is the other way of looking at a peace in the home. Absolutely, it's uh, for me as a diaspora Jew. Because there aren't many of us here, Dan. You know, we. Yeah, uh, no, I know. You know, I, I, I uh, am a person from a very small community in Birmingham, in a massive city, and uh, we treasured everyone. Of course, there were rows between people, but there was a kinship which uh, was slightly greater than your average community, which is bigger. And so, for me, obviously, coming into the world's biggest Jewish community, which is in Israel, to see people offering threatening violence against each other is is a, well it's a hilul hashem isn't it it's a yes it is ter- it's a terrible thing are you playing catch up with johnny gould's jewish state i've had the pleasure of some really great guests how about douglas murray israel is a rare country in the west uh, in that it does buck many of the trends there isn't a fertility rate problem in Israel. Um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries, there is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great, they're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be canceled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from a journalist. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. Dan, that was a magnificent first answer, and I really appreciate that. And now I'm going to say to you, sir, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Uh, well, very lovely to be with you in Johnny Gould's Jewish State. I didn't realize that the nation state of the Jewish people has a sister state called Johnny Gould's Jewish State. And, and, and I must say on the outset that certainly in terms of tradition and language, it's, it's far more cultured than the one I'm sitting in now, but we're doing our best to catch up, Johnny. Well, I'll let you make a decision on that after this interview, but I'll just tell you that uh, the name Johnny Gould's Jewish State is meant as a joke. It's the state of us. It's the state of our Jewish life. In fact, uh, it's an English play on words, which is so amusing, my French wife can't translate it literally into her language, which tells you everything about Britain and everything about France. (laughs) (laughs) And now we move on. Let's talk about your background, because you do bring uh, world-class experience to the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. You're a former Secretary General of the World Jewish Congress. That is an umbrella group representing Jewish communities and organizations across a hundred countries. And actually, you're returning to the Jerusalem Center from earlier in your career. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I have been at the Jerusalem Center um, for a total of 20 years with a, a, an intercession of a uh, little bit over two years or almost three years at the World Jewish Congress uh, working uh, for Ambassador Ronald Lauder, who has been really one of the great leaders of our time for the Jewish world doing everything he can, investing himself and resources and trying to unite the Jewish world outside of Israel at a time of of great anti-Semitism. And in the West, uh, it it is uh, something, a great challenge. So Ambassador Lauder has been an extraordinary figure in that fight. Uh, So it was an honor to work with him at the World Jewish Congress. There's not many of us, but it's going well, please God, here. And we had our scare with the opposition Labour Party, We've developed a name around the world for the way that we united, actually, against uh, the threat of 
Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters. And that's certainly been to our benefit. There are people who are much prouder to be Jews and much more overtly Jewish than they were in this country 10 years ago. There's one particular point, Johnny, on that point, what the what we called Corbyn anti-Semitism is exactly the challenge and the threat that we confront here at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs through research-powered applied diplomacy and new partnerships in the Middle East region. And what I mean by that is that Mr. Corbyn very skillfully uh, mobilized Hezbollah, Hamas, and other radical Islamic actors as part of a larger engine of anti-Jewish hatred and, and of anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism has metastasized from what it was in the Second World War period and subsequent against individual Jews. What Mr. Corbyn was able to do was to actually mobilize political anti-Semitism, as former professor Bernard Lewis, uh, himself a British-American, the greatest Western scholar on Islam in the in the 20th and beginning of the 21st century, had called it political anti-Semitism. And I think that in Britain, British Jewry had faced that type of hybrid monster of um, uh, attacking individual Jews, as well as the collective Jewish community in the state of Israel, and by mobilizing uh, these, what he called his friends in Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, and other pa Palestinian Islamic Jihad against the whole notion of a nation state of a Jewish people and by extension, a British Jewry throughout the UK. So can we pay tribute to your predecessor at the JCPA, Ambassador Dore Gold, the former Israeli ambassador to the UN and Director General of the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs under Benjamin Netanyahu. I did a gripping conversation uh, with him, which is a great podcast. I urge people to scroll back. We live in a world where there are countries around us, immediately around us, or countries that are further away that, uh, you know, have different values than we have. And diplomacy is all about managing those differences, you know, what would we do if tomorrow the president of Turkey all of a sudden said he wants a new relationship with Israel? I mean, would you feel good about that? Uh, it's challenging. It's very challenging. And that's what being a diplomat means. Dory was a heavyweight. Dory is a heavyweight. And uh, the JCPA um, exists as it is today because of his years in the organization. Yes, Dory Gold is a, is a very, very large and powerful example of excellence as a scholar diplomat. I always, and he was a mentor. Dory's been a mentor of mine for, for three decades. And Dory at that time uh, began with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu when Netanyahu was uh, at that time head of the uh, opposition. Uh, the Labour Party was in power and Dory immediately established his, his bona fides as a tremendous scholar of the Middle East and someone who is highly skilled in in diplomacy um, and uh, regional outreach. And, and, you know, his career had has been a, a superb example of what people from the West uh, who come to Israel and want to make a contribution to the eternal history and, and, and hopefully eternal future of the Jewish people can do. So he's uh, and he really did bring the Jerusalem Center for to Public Affairs to a completely different level of, uh, of international recognition. I did laugh when he said to me, oh, you know, when he was at the beginning, of this, I'd really I really need to be starting to brush up my Arabic uh, when I'm going off to the Gulf and talking to the sheikhs and all the kind of senior ministers there. And he, it turns out, he said, in his very broad, slow delivery, he said something like, it turns out they spoke better English than I did. <laughs> With, you know, John, it's a very funny, it's a very important point. I have noticed, and Dory, uh, speaks a beautiful English, of course, and, and was at a Columbia student where he did three degrees and, and a prep school graduate. So he got the, the finest education that, that any Israeli public official or private citizen could hope for in the West. What we did notice, though, and, and Dory and I chuckled about it, is that many of our new Gulf friends and partners in the Arab world were educated in British, European and American universities. And they speak a really um, a beautiful English, some of it Oxford accented, others of it a little bit more American accented. But there are MAs and PhDs from from universities across the UK. So you see that you're really connecting on some educational, scholarly, intellectual level with people with with uh, very deep American educa uh, Western educations.
Indeed, I have uh, two friends who are from this exciting young generation of Emiratis. One educated in London, he's got a very British feel about him, and, and then another one who wears baseball caps and drinks <laughs> um, sort of chocolatey drinks out of um, containers with big M's on them. Let's talk about some of the initiatives that the Jerusalem Centre has been behind not just today, but over many, many decades. And it's something that's in sharp focus right now. And that is the Palestinian Authority's malign behavior, encouraging violent attacks, the constant threat against everyday Israelis, including Jewish children. Well, here you have a situation that is simply untenable intolerable and under uh, examined. And it's what the, the point you've just brought up in the West. It is unknown, largely, the degree to which anti-Semitism in the UK, in Europe, throughout the United States, at unprecedented levels, is driven, inspired, financed, directed by the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah. Many people are unaware and this is research, uh, Johnny, that we've been doing now for years, and I've been spearheading what's called the Counter-Political Warfare Initiative at the Jerusalem Center, which is to research and document the anti-Semitic discourse that goes on on official Palestinian Authority television, which is very well documented as well by Palestinian Media Watch, as well as the rabid discourse of incitement to murdering Israelis, not only Jews, but Israelis in the name of um, Shahada, of the sacrificers, in the name of Jihad. And these, this language is used very openly in Palestinian Authority television and radio, which, by the way, they received the radio tethers from Israel as part of this historic 1993-1995 Oslo Accords. We actually gave them the, uh, the, the radio channels, which they're now broadcasting Israel and Jew hatred so broadly across the Arab world in, in, uh, in Arabic. In addition to which, we are, we are witnessing international legal terrorism through the unlawful and the unacceptable petitions to the International Criminal Court, to the International Court of Justice, through the UN Human Rights Council, uh, holding up Israel on charges of apartheid. Remember that uh, pre-1994 system in South Africa? Well, now they've Nazified the collective Jewish community in Israel as essentially being Nazis as that discourse was determined and declared at the Durban 2001 conference in Durban, South Africa, which had be, which started out as a conference against racism and turned into a festival of racist hatred against one people, and that is the Jewish people, uh, to the exclusion of all other countries or peoples around the world. That launched, Johnny, until today, 21 years of genocidal hatred and activity that is sourced in the Palestinian Authority discourse. And it's that, that that must today be exposed, be monitored, and the Palestinian Authority leader must be held to account. As a final point, Israel in 2022, Johnny, gave the Palestinian Authority 11 billion shekels. That comes out to about, about $350 million, U.S. dollars, um, in taxes that we collect for them, 68% of their annual operating budget comes through Israeli collections on their behalf. And it simply is impossible to continue paying that money for them to use it in order to incite people around the world, you know, radical, whether it's Islamists or other radicals in the West. These are facts which go to my stomach, actually. They are sickening to hear. And the intransigence of Israelis governing class doesn't seem to be acting quick enough to be quelling this. Well, it does. And I think your question is so much is so much in place here. The, the, the big question mark across the screen uh, in, uh, onto which we're both chatting is where the heck have been Israeli governments and, and all Israeli governments since 1993, which are, are basically six Israeli governments, have really given this uh, uh, a festival, if you will, of hatred and anti-Semitism by our peace partners a pass. How is it these governments have given it a pass? Here is the explanation. I'll tell you a secret as long as nobody's listening, which I'm not sure is the case, but a secret for you. <laughs> there is a fear among Israeli governments that if we call out the Palestinian Authority, if we hold them to account, if we penalize them financially in the pocketbook, 
then there is a threat and a danger that the Palestinian Authority could collapse. And if the Palestinian Authority collapsed, so goes the argument. Then what about security coordination? What about this mutual war against uh, or this mutual battle against the Hamas? The Hamas is an equal adversary to the Palestinian Authority and the Fatah, the ruling faction of the PLO, as it is to Israel. What happens to uh, garbage pickup in Ramallah and in Jericho and in Tulkarim and in Hebron? This is the argument because Israeli governments have always said we must have an address, a central address in order to commiserate or to coordinate actions with. Because at the end of the day, it's the IDF that needs freedom of action as it has had basically in Janin and in Nablus fighting these uh, radical Islamic terror groups that goes as we're speaking on this program that continues today. So the, the Israeli governments are concerned that if they don't have or nominally functioning Palestinian Authority, then all hell, pardon the word, would break loose and we wouldn't have as much coordinated effort in order to go get the terrorists and the bad guys, if you will. However, there is hope on the horizon, and that is there is now a competing narrative in the Arab world. And that is, of course, the remarkable work of the Trump administration, Netanyahu's administration, the Abraham Accords. And this gives us some hope, doesn't it, that we are not so much driving a wedge between the Arab people, but actually that there are millions of Arabs out there in the Gulf, for example, and mainly there, that recognize that the war must come to an end, that Israel is here to stay, that, hey, in the Emirates or Oman or Saudi, we've never actually had a war with these guys. They're not trying to take over Jeddah. You know, we're not taking over in Muscat and, and, and uh, Abu Dhabi. Uh, these Israelis could prove to be uh, a beacon of light that we can coalesce around instead of our brothers, the Palestinians. Indeed, indeed. And in fact, I'll tell you a, a very quick 30 second story. Erev Shabbat, I was invited to a very under the radar meeting with none other than certain personages from Sudan. They were in Israel, uh, meeting with all kinds of, uh, of official and unofficial people, and I was invited as a member of, a policy, as, of this the Jerusalem Center for Pu Public Affairs to discuss what are the possibilities for cooperation with Sudan, one of the four uh, Abraham Accord partners, but with their very specific and fragile domestic situation between military government, domestic and civil strife, and now the transition to a civilian government, they have been unable to formally sign on as an Abraham Accord partner. Semicolon, but comma. Is it not extraordinary that in 2023, we are witnessing, John, I can't mention names and I can't be more specific because I'll endanger the people who are here, that we are experiencing the three yeses from Khartoum, Sudan. Yes to Israel's recognition. Yes to negotiations with Israel. Yes to peace with Israel. And I, and I would add a fourth yes. Yes to normalization with the nation state of the Jewish people. Now, why is this so significant, this uh, expression of the four, what I call the four yeses of 2023? Because as you and I remember, and I, I know for speaking for myself that I'm old enough to remember, I, I might venture to say you might be old enough to remember, but I'm not certain. Back in 1967, there was something called the three no's of Khartoum, Sudan. They hosted the Arab League following Israel's miraculous and lightning victory in the Six-Day War, defeating four Arab countries in a period of six days. And Sudan hosted the Arab League, and they said the three no's, no to peace, no to negotiations with Israel, and no to, re uh, uh, no to recognition of Israel. What an extraordinary turn of events has happened um, in, in, since 1967. And I was able to witness it and be part of it. So that's sort of a, uh, a narrative storied answer to your very important question about hope with the Abraham Accord partners. There certainly is hope. The final point I want to make on this particular question you asked is that hope in the Arab world, in the Abraham Accord 
context comes from the top down. Muhammad bin Zayed, his excellency of the United Arab Emirates, he decided that enough is enough. They have to get the anti-Semitism out of the discourse, get the Jew hatred out of its school textbooks and normalize relations with Israel as a indigenous part of the Arab Muslim majority Middle East. That's a very important part. It's not that it's not that they agreed by by the dint of factual existence that the Jews are here and that Israel exists without erasing this notion of Israel as a, a so-called colonialist, imperialist, you know, a mini what, what they used to accuse Great Britain of a mini Great Britain because of uh, the former Mr. Rothschild who had come with his with his perfect Oxford accent from Manchester and negotiated um, with the Saudis in the post-Ottoman period. No. They are accepting the Jewish people as an indigenous people with their 3,700 year old history in the Middle East. That's the hope of normalization that has happened. And uh, President Trump and and, uh, Jared Kushner and um, and and Ron Dermer from Israel, Minister Dermer and Prime Minister Netanyahu and uh, Mohammed bin Zayed and 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 the leaders of Morocco and Bahrain and of course, we, we owe a great debt of, of gratitude to MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, His Excellency for Saudi Arabia, who had to give really gave a green light to, to all of these relationships. It is incredible. There is so much to unpack there, sir. First of all, I have heard it for myself. I visited Abu Dhabi for the first time uh, in 2022. I went to the keynote speech of the Global Media Congress, and I listened there like an English delegate in with the United Nations earpiece in, hearing in English that uh, us in the media had a duty and responsibility to expunge prejudices and examine the possibility of unity and tolerance throughout the world. This was a senior member of the Emirati family of Abu Dhabi saying these things. Um, it was explained to me that um, as Bedouins, they follow the leader, that it is indeed top down, but everything is about hope. They recognize Israel and the Jewish people as partners and that Jews and Muslims should come together. And so you don't have to be that old to have read Red Sea Spies, the extraordinary story of 1977 to 1982, where Danny Limor, Mossad agent, 700 miles behind enemy lines in Sudan, as you say, the three knows, one of the most severe enemies of the Jewish people and the state of Israel. And there he was trying to get Ethiopians out of terrible Sudanese camps uh, in any way he could up the Suez Canal and various other places and via that extraordinary hotel. And also, sir, I was born on the 5th of June, 1967. And uh, so I was given a victory coin to celebrate my birth. I think it's called a victory birth. Shikoyach. <laughs> Shikoyach. And so this brings us on to the geopolitical consequences of where I live and where you are from about how the Arab East and the Christian West have switched sides. The US, home to the world's biggest diaspora, and Western Europe has a greater column of pro-Palestinian support than ever before. And that threatens not just Israel, but all of the diaspora communities within those countries. And there's also the threat from within the J Street, uh, the corporate meltings of Ben and Jerry's in their stance on ice cream sales in Judea and Samaria. Uh, we have yachad in this country, the idea of together, never has the word together been so misused uh, in uh, in or in, in English. What's, what's going on? What is going on with some, a minority, but some of my brothers and sisters? You know, the first thing we both need to do before, uh, before answering this question is taking a pill, because we need to, we need to take an anti-anxiety pill in, the, in America, they call it clonopin. In Israel, they call it clonics. It's one of these beautiful brain relaxers. And I think we need to take one because what, we, what is going on is, is, is simply a head scratcher. The, the Arab Middle East or the Near East, as Professor Lewis used to, would, would call it, of course, and the West have essentially, in some sense, changed sides. You know, you have calls for normalization as an extension to this point that the spirit of the Abraham Accords is now spreading into Africa. 
And we at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs are hosting the first ever Arab-African-Israel Security Conference in Jerusalem. And we have countries that do not have relations with Israel participating with us in the conference. And South Sudan and Djibouti and Somaliland and Nigeria and Ghana and Kenya and Uganda, you name it, they are coming to Jerusalem. So something in terms of hope and shared agenda is happening in a way that we haven't seen it before. And we have, you know, Arab countries coming together with African countries and talking about food security, water security, human security, national security, radicalization, political cohesion. This is all on the, you know, on the uh, uh, the credit side, if you will, on, on the side that is so important in terms of hope and vision and moral imagination between the Jewish people, the Jewish state, and the rest of the the Near East and into Africa, and we should say India, of course, and, and hopefully in Indonesia. On the other hand, the West has changed side. We've seen a type of growth in Jew hatred masked as political criticism. And this is the point that I think we should emphasize in our chat, that what has happened in the West is that in the guise of legitimate political criticism of Israel, whether they think it's because of building housing starts in this part of Judea, Samaria, in that part of Jerusalem, that all bets are off and that violence is virtuous or acceptable or understandable. I mean, violence and terrorism on the part of the Palestinians and their uh, and their cohorts, whether it's the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, whether it's the Hamas, whether it's the uh, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade and Iran, the Iranian regime is behind a lot of this terrorism, certainly with Hamas in Gaza, as well as in different uh, parts of uh, Judea, Samaria, that some call the former West Bank of Jordan. The Jew hatred in America is very much connected to Israel's existence. You will always hear Israel as a pretext or a subtext or a context for attacking Jews, whether those Jews relate, identify, or support Israel or not. So we have to be very clear morally about what is going on in the West. And in the West, they use the excuse of Israel's policy, whether it's this policy or that policy, in order to attack Jews. And that is down and out anti-Semitism, full stop. And cannot be that Israel's decision, taken in a democratic, free and fair election, a democratically elected government, to create more housing in the land of Israel, as long as that housing is uh, done correctly, it's on state land, it is not on another sovereign country's land, it is part of the Oslo Accords, there is a bilateral agreement by the PLO and Israel, witnessed internationally, by the European Union and the UN and the United States that Israel can build on areas under its jurisdiction until the final uh, negotiations occur and the Palestinians in their areas A and B, ours in area C. That has been turned on its head and used as an excuse to attack Jews, whether in, in London or in Manchester or in Birmingham or in Paris uh, or in Peoria, Illinois. And it cannot be. People must learn the facts and they must understand the legal and historical context to the type of, of Jew hatred and assaults on Jews that is taking place in the name of political criticism of Israel. That has to be exposed and has to be shunted aside. Dan, you make a very important point about West Bank, that term. I have an editorial policy on Johnny Gould's Jewish state to call the area Judea and Samaria, because if anyone actually thinks about what West Bank means, and you look at the map, uh, oh, hang on, isn't the West Bank east of Israel? It means the West Bank of Jordan, and so therefore, uh, what one is doing by uh, calling it the West Bank is referring to it as some sort of Jordanian territory. Have a think, ladies and gentlemen, dear listener, about using the term West Bank, and think about where the Jews may have originated from. Absolutely true, Johnny. In fact, it, it, it's probably known to many of your listeners, because this is probably a show for very educated and, and invested listeners, that the only two nations to recognize Jordan's takeover of Judea and Samaria was actually the United Kingdom and Pakistan back in, uh, in 1948 uh, during the Israel's war for independence. And, and the rest of the international community did not recognize Jordanian sovereignty uh, whatsoever over those uh, over those territories. So the West Bank is to assign an ownership and, and sovereignty to Jordan, which they never had uh, and which they essentially conceded in July of 1988. 
Dan, there is one country in particular that troubles me, and it's a huge landmass, if not one of the more important countries, but nevertheless, all peace partners and potential peace partners are vital to Israel, and that is Oman. If someone had said to me in 2020 that Oman would lead the vanguard of Gulf countries recognizing Israel under the banner of the Abraham Accords, I would have said that they were a shoe in. They were there when President Donald Trump and Jason Greenblatt and Jared Kushner unveiled the peace to prosperity plans uh, for the Palestinian and Israeli people. And here we are. Now they formally ban ties with Israel amid Iranian intimidation. The parliament of Oman voted instead to criminalize relations or interactions with what they've now called the Zionist entity. The legislation severs any economic, sports or cultural relations and prohibits dealings in any way or means, whether it's real or electronic. Don't have a Zoom meeting with an Omani because they'll get their hands chopped off if they're in Oman. But this is a real sadness because the relationship with Oman has a history of close ties with Israel, establishing unofficial trade relations 20 years ago. Uh, but the move is apparently thought to reflect Sultan Haitam bin Tariq's friendly attitude towards Iran, as well as being some kind of reaction to the new Netanyahu government. But I remember when Benjamin Netanyahu visited Oman, and he's not the only Israeli prime minister to have gone there. They even had an office there um, encouraging trade. He said, we're going to build a railway. We're going to build a railway between, <laughs> between Oman and Israel. How fantastic would that have been? Uh, however, it seems to be now covert. The relationship will be from the very top via a secure line between the Sheikh and our president or our prime minister. Very, very sad. It is It is very sad, but I, I think you, first of all, laid out the answer in the rather graphically in the first nine or 10 seconds of your very eloquent assessment. But here is the graphic Johnny Gould answer to why Oman has backed off. It's called chopped, hands chopped off. You cannot hold a cell phone without hands. And that's what... Uh, you know, the inheritors of Sultan Qaboos um, uh, are, are saying in Oman is that, look, we cannot survive Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps punishment, severe as it will be if we dare fulfill our the stated intention, even as of a few years ago, to, to join the circle of peace in the Abraham Accords countries. Because we remember back in 1994, um, after the Gaza-Jericho agreement, following the initial Oslo agreement in 93, that the Omanis actually opened an, in we opened an interest section Oman, and then the Omanis were cooperative with, with uh, Israel in, um, in that regard. And then came the Al-Aqsa War, led by Hamas and the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade in 2000. And with the outbreak of violence, they cut off those relationships, criminalized the relationship, and then accepted as a matter of courtesy Prime Minister Netanyahu visited Oman in as recently as 2018. And that's what gave a, I would say, a shot of optimism to the fact that that Oman would join. Uh, they would seem to be a very willing uh, and um, a natural partner. I think that the relations certainly will continue as they had for decades, well under the radar, but they are simply frightened to death of the many, many hundreds and thousands of operatives from the, the, the IRGC in Oman. And, and so therefore, they, their lives are in danger by doing anything public uh, with, with Israel. Iran has already started conducting military maneuvers off Oman's coast, a terrible beginning, I think, to a new form of appeasement to the Iranian regime. Sir, it's been a privilege to talk to you for such a lengthy period, and I really appreciate your time. It's clear that the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs is in safe hands into the future, and I thank you very much indeed for joining me here on behalf of our listeners of Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you ever so much, John, and we invite all of British Jewry here to the Jerusalem Center as your second home away from home in, uh, in, in Israel.
That's really nice. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. Click subscribe and tell your friends about Johnny Gould's Jewish State. There's some great episodes to scroll back for. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel. Um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. Julie Birchill. I've got such a funny fact about Israel, Israel and Bremis. About 15 years ago, an Israeli bar advertising a Birmingham... I'm not making this up, and everyone says I am. They're advertising a Birmingham local newspaper Do they want to go and work in Tel Aviv. And it was because to the Israeli ear, the Brummie accent is apparently wildly sexy and drives them mad. That's unbelievable. Well, I know, yeah. I should try it out. <laughs> I think I could get anyone I wanted yeah. on the beach. All right, oh, yeah. all right, kid. I don't know where it came from, but it was a genuine thing. And ha- if you Google it, I'm sure you'll find it. How am you, Bab? <laughs> you want to come for a drink? And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years. The known that to some degree woke revolution where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, and often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. Jonathan Friedland. I think there is a comfortable way of telling the second level of the story, which is all evil resided in Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler and the Germans and the Nazis. And everyone else was on the side of the Allies, the United States, Britain, everybody else. Now, that's not true. It's more complicated. It can't be. And if you fancy supporting my work, you can do it with as little as a pound. Go to patreon.com slash Johnny Gould. Or if you're feeling particularly generous, give me a monthly donation at donorbox.org slash jgpodcast. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Dangor Education.